This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and as always, I'm joined by the lovely Diana Yogum. Hello. And the handsome Robert Brooklyn. Oh, well, thank you. How are you guys doing today? Great. Handsome. Good. We're going to have fun today because today we're going to drop some truth bombs on some of the most often repeated lies about money. And then we're going to sit down with Carl Richards. He's the author of Behavior Gap, and he has a new book out, and we're going to have him tell us the very best parts. So it'll be a fun show or your money back. Some restrictions everything, apply. Everything you paid us, you'll get it back. Exactly. I'm just hoping that people aren't like, I wasted 20 minutes and my time is worth. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get some lawyer's statement back to me, billable by the 15-minute increments. So those are the restrictions that apply. The point is, <laughs> is you're not getting any money back. And the show could suck and deal with it. And then you've lost that 20 minutes and we're sorry. So you guys, you know how when you're at a party and there's this one guy who is like, you know, the average person swallows like five spiders a night. And it just brings the conversation to like a halt. Everyone stops eating. At Everyone that stops point. eating. And you, in the back of your mind, you're like, there's no way that's true. But you don't say anything because it's a party and you want to be polite. Well, guess what? Everyone, including you, believes all kinds of stupid stuff about money. So we're here to help you stop being that guy at the party who's spreading lies. The spider-eating guy. Don't be the spider-eating guy. So the first lie about money that we're going to talk about is Social Security. We all think it's going to dry out before we get to retirement. Robert, is that true? It's not true, because the thing you need to understand about Social Security is that it's a pay-as-you-go program. So the FICA taxes, it's like the Federal Insurance Contribution Act, that we pay goes pretty much straight to the retirement checks that retirees get. So as long as there are people who are working and paying taxes, retirees will get the checks. Now, it's certainly estimated that we won't be able to cover all those benefits in the future, Social Security Administration creates a report, goes to Congress every year. Right now, they estimate that you'll get maybe 77% of your promised benefits by the year 2033. What could solve that? So that's like living like a woman, 77 cents on the dollar. That's true. (laughs) It's the Social Security glass ceiling. Uh, and, and the report also says that if we just just raised FICA taxes by 3%, all the problems go away. I don't want to pay more in taxes. Um, that's actually essentially a, a cut in benefits, right? It just means that you're paying more today. Still, you will get something. I often tell people if you're in your 40s or younger, assume you're going to get maybe half of what you're promised just to be safe. Yeah, I think that for some people, this maybe it's a good idea to act like Social Security is going to run dry before you retired if it, if it makes you start saving more on your own. Right. It's called like... The, the scared savings plan. Yeah, or, or I, I will call it stre- stress test your retirement plan. Yeah. Right. Just try that and see how things look. Cool. All right. Next one is the lie that buying a house is a good investment. All right. So, unless we're talking about a rental property, you've got to think of your home as a place that you live, that you decorate, that you throw fantastic dinner parties, and that you eventually die in. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big coffin, is, is yes. essentially what we're saying. No. But a house is not a retirement plan. And if you think of it as an investment opportunity, you've got to realize it's actually kind of a pain-in-the-butt investment. First of all, it is not very liquid, meaning to get your money out of it to access any of its value, you've got to either sell it, pay to pretty it up, and then pay some pretty hefty transaction costs to get, re- to get your hands on the money. You can't rebalance it. 
like you can other assets in your portfolio. So it's like, oh, you know what? I think I'm a little heavy, heavy in the house category. Sell some of my house, yeah. buy some more stock. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyone want to rent out the garage? Um, and it's also not cheap to own. You've got to figure in maintenance costs, taxes, um, the $868 someone might have had to pay to fix the heat in the dead of Feb- dead winter you're, of February. You're assuming your house is going to appreciate in value, right. which well, also is not the case. Well, yeah, bottom line, so bottom line, over time, when you factor in all of these costs of, of ownership, houses just barely keep up with the rate of inflation over, over a long period of time. So, just keep that keep that in mind that it's do not think of it as an investment opportunity and certainly don't buy a house in lieu of contributing to a retirement plan either work or on your own because right. the payoff is just not going to be as great right i mean it, it's sort of how you define investment if if you define investment as you buy at one price sell at another price and then you have cash to use a house isn't often like that cuz people are like hey i made so much on my house what would you do with the money well i bought another house yeah, I mean, yeah, and you've bought an inflated, an inflated market. Well, right. the market hit that's gone up just as much. Right, and you pay transaction costs. Now, I, we talked a little bit about this in previous podcasts. I do think it's an asset mm-hmm. that can be used in retirement if you get like a reverse mortgage or downsize, but you don't buy it because you think you're going to double your money over the next couple of years and then sell it. It's just not the same thing. But with renting, aren't I just throwing my money away? It depends on the difference between how much you would pay. To own the house versus how much to rent, and when you pay, we're talking about how much to own it, you have to figure in maintenance and taxes. If renting is significantly less, and you use that difference to invest in the stock market, then it's often very similar type of investment. It could be even better if the stock market does better. All right. Lie number three: Politics and world events should influence your investing decisions. Uh, interesting thing about this, uh, our colleague Morgan Housel wrote about this before the last election in 2012, and he cited a study from Edward Jones that said 90% of people were planning to make some change in their portfolio based on the outcome of the election. What I think is funny about that is if you look at other surveys, people say they hate Congress because Congress never gets anything done. So why would you base an investment decision on people who don't do anything? Um, but I also think we give too much credit to, uh, or we think, a single person like the president or a group of people like a political party or Congress actually has that much influence over the economy. Economy is driven by so many global factors that uh, don't have anything to do with who is the president of the United States. So to make a decision based on who just won that election, it's probably not going to work out very well. Yeah, and you were telling us before the show about a guy who actually invested in, in ahead of... Obama becoming president, right? right? So yeah, socialism was coming. Right, he thought that uh, President Obama was going to come and basically destroy all our property rights. So he sold in two thousand nine. Of course, what happened then? That was the bottom. The stock market has gone up what one hundred and fifty, two hundred percent since then. And you'll find, you know, people who did the same when when George Bush was elected. It just doesn't work out that way. And and you'll see people like Jim Cramer said uh, when George Bush was elected or, or right beforehand. Bank stocks are going to do well because he's going to be favorable to the financial services industry. By the time George Bush was no longer president, bank stocks were down like sixty percent. So you just can't can't anticipate how these things are going to work out. Right, right. And Obama was supposed to make solar power, like solar stocks were just going to go through the roof. Right, right. But no, that didn't happen. Yeah, and the biggest one I think is down like ninety percent, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So don't do it. Don't Don't do do it. it. Don't do it. Vote, but don't change your portfolio. Right. 
Next, money lie. Keeping a balance on your credit card is good for your credit score. Right, Diana? Wrong. Oh. I, I, I wonder where this myth comes from. I hear, I hear it a lot. And I wonder if people think that, that keeping a balance on the card uh, gives the credit reporting agency, shows that they're alive and using cards. I'm, I'm not sure. But this is a myth. You do not have to carry debt to help your credit score. However, your balances do affect your credit score in this way. Um, and something called the debt to available credit ratio. About once a month, uh, your credit card reports your balances to the credit reporting bureaus, and they look at that amount that you owe compared to your credit limit, and it tells them if you're overextending yourself, say if you're close to maxing out your cards, or if you're, you know, being a responsible credit user and 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 keeping your spending well within within your limits. That's what lenders look for, look at in terms of credit card balances. And 30% of your score is based on your credit utilization ratio. Ideally, you want to keep that to less than your that ratio less than 35%. So you've got a ten thousand uh, dollar credit limit on your card. You want to keep that balance to less than 3,500 at any one time. Now, if you're carrying a balance on your card, that's going to affect any wiggle room you have there. So let's say you've got a $3,000 balance on your card. That means at any one time to remain within a safe zone, you've got about $500 that you can spend. So the lesson here, don't you don't have to carry a balance. What you do have to do is use your cards occasionally right. on a regular basis. That gives the lender something to report to the credit bureaus, but you don't have to carry a balance. Pay it off. Pay yeah. it off. Use it, but pay it off. Right. Yeah. So that's probably where the myth comes from. You have to have some credit. You have to have done something. Yeah. But you don't have to have it revolving going through every right. month. Yeah. Our next money lie. Robert, I'm pretty sure that investing in gold is a safe haven and a smart thing that I should do, right? Absolutely. Not remember when they used to say that? <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> Gold has Bring been a, back. a yeah. means of Do currency that. for thousands of years. So I think, and it's something you can hold and and store away in your house as opposed to a piece of paper that's just kind of floating around and you never know if anyone's going to honor it in the future. Um, so I think that's where people think it's a good investment. The thing is, the returns have shown that it's not a good investment. So if you look back to 1975, gold loses money in more than 40% of the individual calendar years. And even if you stretch that out over 10-year periods since 1975, it loses money in a third of the time. So when you think about that, like you buy gold today and historically you have a one in three chance of it being worth less in 2025. Is that the kind of investment right. you want to buy? Right. So I, I don't even really understand. I mean, I understand like the history of gold and people used to exchange gold for goods and services, but gold itself doesn't have value it's a, i mean it's a lump of gold i could turn it into a ring and then it would have value and someone would want to buy a ring because it has a function no yeah. but the funny thing when you go to reset like sell your jewelry they melt it down yeah that the design has unless it's there's some great provenance yeah. or it's a, it's a known designer they weigh the gold they pay you what so like there's no yeah. value in gold right like no. it's just like the only value it has is what some Guy thinks puts it, it on has. a scale. Right. right, you're just yeah. assuming that people in the future are willing to pay more for it. Warren Buffett makes this point all the time. It's not a business. It doesn't increase its profits. Doesn't pay you a dividend. Uh, he did a, a comparison in one of his annual letters a couple of years ago about saying you have all this gold worth this much money, and it's a big. You could melt it down to a cube that's like 68 feet on each side. Mm -hmm. Hold it for a century, or you could buy all the cropland in the United States have 16 Exxon Mobiles and another trillion dollars for walking around money. 
a century from now, all that farmland and all those Exxon Mobiles have produced all kinds of food and profits and dividends, but the gold is still just a big cube that's 68 feet on each side. It just doesn't do anything. Is is the thinking that if I invest in gold and then like the world governments collapse and we're all like, I don't know, living with shotguns and canned food, that still gold will somehow I will still be wealthy with my mountain of gold? That's the thinking. And and that is the thinking. And of course, the the counter thought to that is, okay, so if if society is collapsing, why would anyone need gold? Right, you should be investing right. in cans of soup and ramen noodles. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like that should be build your index. bomb shelter out Boy of Scout, gold. Boy Scout manuals, <laughs> things like that. I know, boys, exactly. How to make fire? The final lie that we're going to drop a truth bomb on today and blow up is that you should take money out of the stock market when you retire. All right. Diana, I'm cashing out when uh, I hit sixty-five. All right, wait, yeah. sixty-seven, because that's when Robert convinced me to retire. No, Allison. Because we're dropping truth bombs. That's right. I should. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No. Uh, yeah, take some of your money out. Take out the money that you're going to be spending over the next five or ten years, the money that you're going to have to pay your mortgage with or and that you're going to have to live on. But the rest, most of the rest should stay invested because the average 65-year-old is going to live to be 85 or so. And half are going to live longer than that. That's a lot of years of living. It's Twenty years. That's of a living. lot of years that you got to pay to live. That's a lot of years that your money can continue to grow and compound over time. And it's also a lot of years to weather stock markets up and downs. So, if you take too much of that of your money out of the stock market when you retire, your portfolio is not even going to keep pace with inflation, and and you're robbing your future. Quality of so life. So, how much to do should that. I retire? How much should I keep in the stock market? So, so reading Robert's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Mm-hmm, thank you very much. Yes, he's found that in studies that look at um, safe withdrawal rates for retirees in retirement, that indicate retirees should have at least twenty five percent of their portfolios in stocks. And that's the lower bound. I mean, it, closer to fifty percent is probably a good idea. Um, the good point that you made, Diana, is that any money you need in the next five years or so should definitely be out of the stock yeah. market. But once you do that, then it should be closer to something like 60-40 or something like that. Because inf- the inflation risk is the big deal. I mean, if you're investing in cash or bonds, you're going to earn 1% to 3%, and your portfolio is not going to keep up with inflation at that rate. What should our listeners do when they are at a cocktail party and the spider-eating guy transitions from talking about all the spiders you eat to talking about money, and he maybe drops one of these um, horrible money lies? What should, what should our listeners do? How do they how do they gently correct them without coming across as a jerk? What do you think? Okay. Or what do you do? Let's do a little role playing here. Here we are at our cocktail party. Hi, how are you? So nice to meet you. Oh, hey. They Hi. have great spiders at this party. That's all I'm saying. But, you know, a funny thing about spiders is that you eat five of them every night when you sleep. Did you also know that? Let me see which one. Social Security is going to dry up before you retire. So, whatever. I can understand why you'd say that. It's probably does, it definitely has its financial struggles, but the truth is, and then I turn on our podcast and play that yeah. point that I just explained earlier. I find people react much better to know understanding pros and cons versus being told that they're stupid. Really? <laughs> Allison loves being told that she's stupid. I mean, as much as you guys tell me I'm stupid, I can tell. <laughs> well, here's the pros and cons of my stupidity. <laughs>
somehow we're able to convince smart, famous people to sit down with us and answer a few questions. And today that person is Carl Richards. You would know him by the great cocktail napkin sketches he did for the New York Times to help explain finance and money. Or you might know him for his book, The Behavior Gap, Simple Ways to Stop Doing Dumb Things with Money. His latest book is The One-Page Financial Plan, A Simple Way to Be Smart About Your Money. And spoiler alert, the book is more than one page. <laughs> Diana sat down with him at Fool Fest last month to talk about how to tackle financial gold. You say a great financial plan has nothing to do with what the markets are doing, what your real estate agent is pitching, or the hot stock your brother-in-law told you about. It has everything to do with what's most important to you. But so many people haven't nailed that last part. They have at best identified some sort of vague long-term plan, like I'm saving for retirement. That's what I'm going to do. So how much more specific do they need to be? And what's your advice for helping people find that thing that's most important to them so that they can align their finances with it? That's a super good question. No, I, I, I think the... The dilemma is, like, we're not used to having those conversations, right? So we've got to start there. Like, start having those conversations. And and there's a bunch of, I mean, you can read plenty about how to do that, right? Like, But it involves preparing emotionally a little bit, right? Like, figuring out when and where you have those conversations. And be prepared for them to be emotional, right? So that's the first thing, right, is start talking about money and in that process be prepared to for that conversation to be emotional. So once you're ready to talk about it, Right, then you start learning how to talk about the right things. And the first thing you should learn to talk about is, where are we going? Right, that's the big deal. Like how we spend so much time arguing about how we're going to get somewhere when we haven't even decided where we're going most of the time. So, and then, so once you've established this, okay, we're going to get clear about where we're going, then give yourself permission to guess. Right, I think that's, that's another big thing is we have this false sense of precision and there's this anxiety wrapped up around, like, I've got to know like, what my utility bills are going to be 25 years from now if I'm going to do any financial planning. Don't. Just guess a little bit. Like, but be committed not to the guess, but to the process of guessing. Right? So guess. Know you're going to be wrong. Like Calling it a guess, it, believe me, no matter how much research or anxiety or time you put into it, it's still a guess. So like, it's a little secret. So just call it what it is. And I feel like that, allow, that releases things a little bit. Like it's almost... I don't want to call it a game because it's not a game. It's serious stuff. But guess takes a little bit of the, you know, false sense of precision, the stress out of it. So call it a guess and then be committed to the process of guessing because your guess is going to be wrong. So just know that it's going to be wrong. Make your best guess and then guess again and guess again. And so if we're committed to that process of guessing over time, we will sort of narrow in this huge potential range of outcomes into sort of where we want to be. The book is called The One-Page Financial Plan, A Simple Way to Be Smart About Your Money. Okay, Mr. Succinct, what's the most important page in your new book? The, the page I think that's the most important, it's early in the book, and it's a drawing. I think it's in Chapter 1 or the introduction, and it's just the word why with a bunch of sort of circles around it. I think that's the most important page. Like, it's getting clear about why we're doing these things. Okay, why? That's a really good question. No, no, the reason why, because we aren't used to asking those questions, right? We're running around doing what, you know, the financial pornography network tells us or what the neighbor tells us or what the, you know, the evil brother-in-law. I have great brother-in-law, so I like to sort of pick on the evil brother-in-law. Bash on it. Yeah, but, but it's like getting clear about asking ourselves why about everything. Like, why are we saving this much? Or why are we spending this much or this little in retirement, right? Why are we investing this way? 
And it's not that we have a good or bad answer. That's the important other piece is like, this isn't about judgment. I think you get used to asking why and then get used to saying to yourself, oh, interesting, right, about the answer. Just interesting. Right? It's just noted like, oh, that's interesting. So we can get clear about our motivations and the plan becomes really solid because once the plan's solid, all this other stuff about what investment to use and when to, that becomes easier. So that's why, that's why, why is the most important page in the book. Thanks to Carl Richards for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at Behavior Gap, and you can get his latest book. Again, that's The One-Page Financial Plan, A Simple Way to Be Smart About Your Money. Well, you can get it everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Carl Richards' house. Carl Richards' house. Go yeah. visit him. <laughs> so that's going to do it for today, but I do have an update about uh, LUFA, a LUFA-related update. <laughs> As you guys may remember, we talked a couple episodes back about the Villages that community in Florida where swinging seniors like to tell each other that they're ready to swing by putting a loofah on their golf cart antenna. We were a little puzzled. Why Why would you do that? <laughs> um, but Why would you choose a loofah? Why would you choose a loofah? We, uh, we, we know, we know we don't, why we're you not, We're swing. not going to question anyone's lifestyle choices. Go for it. It's fine. Uh, but just remember, protection people. <laughs> so, Sean B., listener Sean B., shot us an email to let us know that he thinks, and I think it's a very good theory, that the reason why they do that is because of the movie Caddyshack. And there's a, a scene in Caddyshack that's loofah related. <laughs> a loofah-centric A loofah-centric scene. bit. And Involving an older woman. And, and a loofah. And... I'm not. I mean, you can Google it. Just Google Caddyshack and Lufa on your own. You're a grown adult. You can yeah. do it, or not. In, in which case, if you're a kid, don't do it. <laughs> exactly. Don't but, don't touch a Lufa until you're 18. At least. So, thanks, Sean B, for helping us solve the mystery of the Lufa. Uh, I think we're all better people for it. I'm glad we're able to put this one to bed. So, that's nice. Okay. Theme music written and performed by Diana Yoakum. The show is edited by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Please drop us a line. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, as a side note, we have received a large volume of email from you people asking really awesome questions. We love it. We love it. Yay. We love it. Um, but it is hard for us to get to all of your questions, so I just want to apologize now. But please keep them coming, and we will do our best to get to them in future shows. For Robert Brookamp and Diana Yoakum, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on.